0: last chapter Jacob's family suffered a horrible tragedy as Jacob's only daughter Dinah was raped Uh, and that tragedy got even worse when the rapist who is the prince of the city and his father who is the king of the city has the audacity to come to Jacob and say hey can my daughter can uh, my son marry your daughter the the rapist now marry the one that he raped and Uh, We saw that Jacob and his sons, they had a chance to respond in a godly, biblical way, but neither do. Uh, They both have extreme responses, but extreme responses on different ends of the spectrum. Jacob does nothing. Uh, His daughter is raped. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He's the one who should have been the leader of the home. He's the one who should have protected his daughter. He's the one. Who should have, you know, done what was right here? But he just doesn't do anything, uh, and as he does nothing, he leaves this void for someone else to step in and do something, and that's his sons, and they respond in the opposite extreme. They lie and they tell the men of the city. They say, "Hey, you know what? We can't allow Dinah to marry Shechem." Uh, because you guys aren't circumcised and we are. And so if all of you will get circumcised, not only can you marry Dinah, Shechem, but all of our women will be available for you to marry and we'll trade with you, we'll dwell with you, we'll have this, you know, relationship with you guys, but you have to get circumcised. And so the men of the city say, okay, fine, that sounds like a great deal. They all get circumcised on day three when they're in excruciating pain, Simeon and Levi, the brothers of Dinah, come with their swords, and they kill every single man in the city, and it doesn't stop there, then all the brothers get in on the action, and they steal everything that's in the city, and they take the women and children and make them captive, and so you have Jacob's extreme of doing nothing to the son's extreme of murdering, stealing, and bringing people in the captive in retaliation for their sister getting raped. And so Genesis 34 is one of the saddest chapters in the book of Genesis. We actually don't see the name of God mentioned at all in that chapter. It's just a very sad chapter. But as we come to chapter 35 tonight, we see a drastic change. It's one of the most encouraging. So we go from one of the saddest chapters to one of the most encouraging chapters in Genesis because Jacob decides it's time to repent, it's time to change, It's time to start to spiritually lead his home. It's time to become obedient to God and get right with God again. And so, chapter 34 is all about sin. And chapter 35 is now, how do you respond when you sin? And this is a great practical chapter for us because all of us sin. You know, we sin on a regular basis. And so, the question that we all have to ask ourselves is now, how do I respond? I've sinned, and what should I do? And what we see here with Jacob is, One of the few times in his life where he's a good example of something. He's a good example in this chapter of how to respond once you sin. And so we're going to look at that starting in verse 1 of chapter 35, which says this. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So Jacob has just been disobedient. And one of the things that he was disobedient in is remember when he was coming back to the promised land, God told him, go to Bethel. Go to that place where you first met with me. Remember where he had the the dream of the ladder going up to heaven and you know that intimate time he had with God, he built an altar of worship to God there. God said, go back to that place. But because of fear of Esau and fear of other things, he decides to go somewhere else. He goes to Shechem instead And we solve the problems that arise there in Shechem. The men are so horrible, uh, especially to his daughter. And so now he's at this place where God once again comes to him and says, you need to leave where you're at. You're, You're being disobedient. You're not where I want you to be. Go to Bethel, like I told you before. Get back to the place that I want you to be. You know, the thing that I love here about God is even in Jacob's disobedience, even in Jacob's sin as he responds by doing nothing when his daughters raped, even though his sons have murdered all these people, God is still gracious enough to come to him and tell him, "Hey, Jacob, this is what I need you to do. This is what is important now. This is how you're going to grow. This is how you're going to change." You know, ultimately God wants to do a work of sanctification in Jacob. Sanctification is that process where we're set apart from the sin of the world and set apart to God. And so it's twofold. It's not just setting ourselves apart from sinful things and trying to stop doing these sinful things, but it's also setting ourselves apart to God and, and spending time with God and, and living for God. And so God's seeking to do this twofold pro, uh, process in Jacob's life. First, Jacob, you got to obey. you got to you know, set yourself apart from you know, where you're at. You're in a very sinful place. You need to get to Bethel. You need to get to the place that I've called you to. But once you're there, I want you to be set apart to me. I want you to obey me. I want you to live for me. And so stop living for the world and start living for me. And this is the challenge that God is giving to Jacob. And I love this about God because He does this with us as well. Even when we're in our sin, even when we're in our disobedience, He still is gracious enough to come, remind us of what He desires of us, remind us of what He wants to do in us, the fact that He wants to sanctify us, set us apart from the sin that we're doing, and change us so that we will be set apart to living for Him and obeying Him. And I'm so glad that he does this. I'm so glad that when you and I sin, when we fail, he doesn't just say, you know what, I'm done with you. Forget you. I'm not going to talk with you anymore. I'm not going to minister to you anymore. I'm not going to help you anymore. I'm just going to let you go down that path that you desire to go and ruin your life. God loves us too much to allow us to just continue in that direction. And so he comes to Jacob and he reveals to Jacob what he wants Jacob to do. but. You know what? All of us have free will. We have choices. God says, this is what I want from you, but I'm not going to force you to do it. And so now Jacob's in this place of God saying, I already told you to go to Bethel once. You disobeyed then. I'm going to tell you again. Go there. Obey me. Do what I've asked of you. And now once again, Jacob's in this position of, am I going to listen to God? Am I going to do what he says? Or am I once again going to disobey and do whatever I want to do? Well, let's see how Jacob responds this time in verse 2. And Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. So God tells Jacob, leave this city, this place in Shechem that I never wanted you to be in, and go to the place that I told you to go to before, Bethel. Back to the place where I first met with you. Back to the place where you built that altar of worship to me. And so Jacob responds by coming to his family. And before leaving to Bethel, which he's going to do in obedience to God, he tells his family, there are three things that I want you guys to do before we even make a journey Away from Shechem. The first thing he tells them is put away the foreign gods that are among you. You know, one of the biggest things that draws us away from the true God, the God that we should be worshiping, the God that we should be living for, are foreign gods. Foreign gods are anything that we worship, anything that we live for, and replace God with. And so, you know, we we think so often in the Bible of Idols and things like that, which, you know, can be foreign gods for sure. But, you know, they could be people, it can be money, it could be power, it could be fame, it could be ourselves. There's so many things that we can put in that place where I'm living for me or I'm living for power. I'm living for fame. I'm living for something other than God. And whenever we do that, we have a foreign God in our life. Whenever we do that, we have something that's replacing what we should be living for and it draws us away from God. It keeps us from what God wants us to do. And we see this in his sons' and daughters' lives. Hey, put away these. He knows that they have foreign gods. He knows that this is going on in their life. And so his first thing is, we're going to get right with God. We're going to go back to Bethel. We're going to go back to living for God. We haven't been doing that. But the first step in this process is we got to get rid of the gods that we are living for so that we can actually live for the God that we should be living for. And this is a a good, good challenge for us, because so often we get sidetracked in what we should be doing in the Christian life, and living for the God that we should be living for, and when God reveals that to us, hey, you know what, you've left your first love. Hey, you know what, you're not living for me like you should be. It's always because there's something that we're living for in place of Him, and so we have to remove that. We have to say, okay, well, maybe it's me that's in the way, or maybe it's this or that, or whatever it may be, and I have to... Lay aside that and make God the focus, make him the thing that I'm going to continue to live for. And so the first thing he tells his family to do, and this is noting finally some spiritual leadership in Jacob. Last chapter it would have been nice, you know, when he had the chance to lead his family, he's quiet, he doesn't do anything, and now he finally steps up. And not only is he saying, you know what, I'm going to make this change in my life, but We are going to make this change. I'm leading you, all of us here. We're heading to Bethel together, and we're getting rid of our foreign gods. So all of you do this. We finally see some spiritual leadership in Jacob's life, which is a good sign. The second thing he tells his family to do is to purify themselves. You know, Jacob and his family, they obviously have some sin issues, some impurity issues. Two of his sons are mass murderers. You know the other ones are thieves, and you know they've imprisoned innocent women and children, and that's just happened in the last chapter. They have other issues in their life, but you know they, sin brings impurity, it brings problems into our life. and the most common thing that draws us away from God is sin. You know this is a thing that we all struggle with, the thing that hinders our relationship with God draws us away from God. And so as we seek to get right with God, seek to get back into that relationship that we should have, one of the things we need to do is seek to be cleansed from the sin in our life. And the Bible in the New Testament makes clear the process in which we do that. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is one of the greatest promises of God for us, that if we'll confess to Him the sin that we've committed, He is always faithful. There's not one time you're going to be like, nope, you did it too much. Nope, that's too big of a sin. No, He will always be faithful to not only forgive you, but also to cleanse you from the unrighteousness that sin brings into your life. Because when we sin, it brings problems. It brings unrighteousness. It it causes this impurity to happen. And so God not only forgives us, but he brings this cleansing work, and Jacob is ultimately saying to his family, "Hey, we need to be cleansed as well." Uh, and you know, this is something that's so important to do. The third thing that Jacob tells his family to do before they leave to Bethel is change your garments. Now, Jacob's family changing their garments was uh, an important step, both literally and also more in a figurative or, or symbolic sense. Throughout the Bible, we see that. When people change their garments, it's often a demonstration of what's happening inwardly. Throughout Scripture, you see that people who normally would wear you know, nicer, fancy garments, especially sometimes we even see kings doing this, they take that off and they put on sackcloth. They put on ashes on their head. They kneel in the middle of the, the, the streets and they weep and they cry out to God. And, and, and that outward... Uh, wear that they have is a sign of something that's going on, this humility, this repentance of, you know what, I'm taking off the fancy stuff I usually wear. I'm putting on this sackcloth. I'm putting on this ashes because I'm in a state of mourning. I'm in a state of humility. I'm in a state of repentance. It demonstrates something within them, the outward thing that they're wearing. But we also see scripturally that, you know, there's more symbolic things that that the Word of God shares with us. Paul in Ephesians speaks of using this analogy of putting off and putting on as we think of clothing, but he says, well, there's actually something more important to put off and put on. Ephesians 4, 22-24, it says this, "...that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. You know, this is something that we need to recognize. We have the old man, which is the person that we were like before we accepted Christ. And then we have the new man or woman, the person that we're like now that we've been changed. When you accept Jesus Christ into your life, the Spirit of God indwells you. You're now a new creation. God has done a changing work in you and in me. The problem that we face so often is that even though we're changed, we don't live like it sometimes. We live like the old person. We live like the person that we used to be before we accepted Christ. And so this challenge for us, especially if we're in that place and we're living like we used to be instead of living like we should be, what God has created us now in Christ, Paul's saying, hey, put off that old person. Quit living that way. Put on the new person, the one that God has done and done in you because of you accepted Jesus Christ. Now, you could pretty much take all three of these things that Paul or sorry, Jacob tells his family to do and just put it under one heading and that heading would be repentance. Oftentimes when we sin, we are remorseful, but we're not repentant. Remorsefulness is to feel sorry, to feel guilt. And we have that a lot. Sometimes we're just sorry and feel guilt because we were caught. We're not really sorry for what we did. We're just sorry for the consequences. But remorsefulness just is a feeling. That, that feeling of guilt, that feeling of sorrow for what we've done or maybe the consequences of what we've done. But that's not repentance. Repentance is to turn away from something. So you have the remorsefulness was just to feel bad about something. But God doesn't want us just to feel bad. He wants us to turn away. He wants us to repent. And so often we don't get to that place. We just start here. Oh, I feel bad that I did this, but that's all I have. But I'm not going to turn from it. I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm not going to leave it. And that's where God wants us to get. And I love that Jacob is ultimately saying this to his family. We need to repent. Don't just feel bad. There needs to be a turning away. You know what? Get rid of the idols. Turn away from those things. We've got to get rid of that stuff. There needs to be a a cleansing. There needs to be a change in us. He realizes the importance of repentance and coming back to God. And this repentance is a wonderful example to us. And it leads to the first point. As we're looking at how should we respond when we sin, the first thing I want you to take note of is when you and I sin, we need to turn away from our sin and turn to God. It's not enough just to feel bad. It's not enough just to feel sorry. We need to actually repent, to turn away from the sinful behavior and turn to God. And the only way we can do that is to rely on God's strength and the ability that He gives us to accomplish that. So Jacob responds to God's command with repentance but he also now is taking a spiritual leadership in his home that is wonderful to see. You know, last chapter we didn't see it pretty much for his whole life. We haven't really seen him spiritually lead. But now he's not just saying, hey, I'm going to repent. I'm going to get rid of false gods. I'm going to cleanse myself. I'm going to change my outer garments. No, he's saying, we're going to do this. All of us need to do this together. And I want you to note something in Jacob's life. Notice that The only time that his kids get right, that his kids actually respond in a godly way, is when he first sets the example. We've seen his kids messing up over and over again, but what have we seen from him? I mean, he's been setting this example of ungodliness throughout his life, and what we see is his kids just following the ungodly example of their dad. But the great thing is, now we see him finally taking some spiritual leadership, finally saying, you know what? Not only am I going to change, but I want our whole household to change. And I'm going to make an example of myself and say, We're doing this. And you see that his kids are now following this new godly example. And they're willing to follow and see now good behavior come from him where there used to only be godly behavior. And so, you know, I think this is something so important for us to understand, and especially for us as men where God has called us to be spiritual leaders in the home. Look at the difference in Jacob's family from a man who doesn't spiritually lead from a man who does and how that influences his kids. And this reality is either going to be an encouragement or it's going to be something scary. It's an encouragement if you're leading spiritually. Yes, that's going to impact my kids positively. It's scary when you think, oh, I'm not doing this. And so I'm going to impact my kids negatively. But I think something to remember and something that is hopefully an encouragement, the good news that we see here is Jacob throughout his life failed to lead spiritually, but he was able to change. Here we see something new in his life. Here we see a change in his life. And the change in his life impacts and influences his kids as well. And so even if you look and think, man, I've been a poor leader, and example to my family, But you know what? When you get right with God and that leadership and that example changes, you can now make a new impact on your family. Even though the past might have been a poor one, the present and the future can still be a good one. And hopefully we take some encouragement from the change in Jacob and how it influences his family. Verse 5. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities they were all around them they did not pursue the sons of jacob so jacob came to luz that is bethel which is in the land of canaan he and all the people who were with him and he built an altar there and called the place el bethel because there god appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother here we see another big change in jacob's life we've been looking at his life each chapter and one of the biggest things that you could characterize jacob as is a man full of fear Fear has been the thing that has driven most of his decisions. Fear of his brother Esau who wanted to kill him. Fear of his father-in-law who didn't want him to leave when he did. Fear of all these different things that are happening. And he's always trying to protect himself. He's been trusting in himself. He hasn't trusted God. He hasn't looked to God. This fear has caused him to respond with just lots of things that God wouldn't want from him. And remember, the end of the last chapter... His sons murder all the men in this city. And his response is, all the people in this area are going to try to kill me because of you guys. And that's a truthful statement. You guys just murdered a bunch of people, and the rest of the people around here are not going to respond kindly to that. So he's fearful of what might happen to him and his sons, who are murderers, and to his family. But guess what? To get to Bethel... He's got to walk through all of these different places in order to get there. All these places where the people would want to kill him and his family for what his sons have just done. And so here's a man who, before this, would have been stricken with fear, would have come up with some kind of plan to protect himself as he has his whole life. And now for the first time, as God tells him, go here. And he realizes, well, if God's told me to go, then God is going to enable me to get there. If God's told me to go, then God's going to protect me on the way. And for the first time, he actually trusts that God will take care of him. And he goes through all these different cities where people would normally want to kill him. And the only reason that they don't, notice what it is, the fear of God was placed in them. God moved. God was the one who made it so these people would not kill Jacob and kill his family. God was the one who ultimately enabled them to get to Bethel without dying. David Gusick said this, It was dangerous for Jacob to set out to Bethel, but it was more dangerous for him to disobey God. The only thing that could save him was a radical obedience to the Lord. No matter what the circumstances look like, the safest thing to do is the will of God. After Jacob repents, he repents of his sin, notice that he leads his family and himself to do something very important, to walk in obedience. God says, I want you all in Bethel, and instead of saying, no way we're going that way, no way we're going there, all these people might kill us, he could have given all these excuses, he finally says, you know what? I'm going to walk in obedience. I'm going to do what God has told me to do. I want to be in God's will. Which brings us to the second thing I want us to note about how we should respond when we sin. And that says we need to walk in obedience to God. When repenting for our disobedience to God, repenting for our sin, the next step should be, all right, now that I want to turn away from this, Well, turn to what? Turn to some other sin? No, I need to turn to God. I need to turn to obedience. I need to turn to to now living for Him. That's what got me in this mess to begin with. I wasn't obedient. I wasn't living for Him. I was sinning. And so often we just kind of turn from one sinful behavior to another. Turn from one situation that's sinful to another instead of turning and saying, no, I'm going to turn and start obeying. I'm going to learn my lesson that the reason I'm here is because of disobedience and I don't want to be here anymore. And I know the way out of here is finally to actually walk in obedience and do what God has told me to do. Too often the pattern of our life is we repent of our sin and then right away walk in sin again. And we need to get to a pattern where when we sin, right away we seek to walk in obedience. Seek to turn and do what God desires from us. So Jacob has responded to his sin by turning away from his sin. He's responded to his sin by walking in obedience with God. And he's also leading his family to do the same. And now we're going to see how God responds to Jacob. Jacob's done what he's supposed to do. This is a rarity in his life. So how is God going to respond to the fact that Jacob's finally doing what God wants. He's responding to his sin properly by repenting, and he's actually responding to God's command properly by obeying. So how is God going to now respond to Jacob doing these godly things? Well, we're going to see that in a moment, but Jacob is now in Bethel. And because we're looking at more of a chronological account of what happens before we see how God responds, something takes place right away when they reach Bethel, something sad for the family, verse 8 tells us this. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 24, Eliezer, Abraham's servant, was sent to find a bride for Isaac. And he goes back to Abraham's homeland and he finds Rebekah. Rebekah decides that she's willing to come back with Eliezer, willing to be Isaac's bride, but we're told in Genesis 24, 59, she doesn't leave alone. We're told this, so they went away, Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And so Rebecca takes a nurse with her as she heads back to the promised land, heads back to Isaac, and now we find out this nurse's name, that's the only mention we had until this time. We're told her name's Deborah, and she would have been quite old at this point in time because she's the nurse of, you know, um, Rebecca, who's already dead, uh, and so she would have been quite old, but she's still alive, and we're not told. She just kind of comes on the scene here. It kind of seems a little bit out of place, but we're going to see death is a theme towards the end of this chapter, unfortunately, for Jacob's family, um, but We don't know how they got connected. We don't know if she might have joined him when he initially went away to find a wife. We don't know if he connected with her back in the promised land just recently. But there would be, I'm sure, something that would remind him of his mom. You know, here's the nurse of his mom. His mom's already passed away. And now here's this woman with maybe this connection that he has with her because of his mother, and she dies. And we know that it was something that moved them. Because after they bury her, they name this place Alon Bakuth, which means Oak of Weeping. Uh, and so they name it that because obviously they were heartbroken. They were saddened by the death of this woman. And, you know, so we see this. It seems kind of like, well, it doesn't fit in the story. Well, it does chronologically. Right when they get to Bethel, this happens. But we're also going to see towards the end of this chapter, Jacob's going to lose a couple other very close people in his life. And so... Jacob gets to Bethel, he's responded in obedience, he's responded in repentance, and now we're going to see how God responds to him, verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am almighty God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be Uh, proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give you this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So notice the first thing that God does in response to Jacob's repentance, in response to Jacob's obedience, Jacob finally comes back to where God wanted him, the place where God first met with Jacob, the place where he had this dream, the place where he built this altar to the Lord. And notice what God does. He appears to Jacob, which would have been a wonderful thing as well. And then we're told that he blesses Jacob. And you know, throughout the Bible, we see this pattern. When people repent of their sins and start obeying God, God blesses them. It's this thing that God continues to do. I want you to do this, and as you do this, I will pour my blessings upon you. And you look through Scripture and you see example after example of people doing this. I'm sure you can even look at your own life and see how you have obeyed God and the blessings that have come to your life because of it. God blesses obedience. And so often we desire God's blessings, so often we pray for God's blessings. And we wonder, why aren't we getting them? Because sometimes all we're doing is desiring and praying for them, but we're not obeying Him. And that's the sad reality. It's like, oh, I want your blessing, but I don't actually want to live for you. I want you to give to me, but I don't want to do anything back for you. And God said, it doesn't work that way. I'm not just going to bless you while you live in sin and while you ignore what I tell you to do. If you want blessings for me, obey me. Live for me. And watch how I bless you. And watch how I bless your life. And so if you want blessings from the Lord, don't just desire them. Don't just pray for them. Be obedient. That's one of the things that we see so clearly in Scripture as a thing that opens that door of blessing from the Lord. So after God blesses Jacob, He reminds Jacob that he has a new name. This isn't the first time Jacob has been told this. The last time that he and God had a, uh, a time together, the last time they spoke with one another, God changed his name from Jacob which means heel catcher and deceiver, to Israel, a man governed by God. A drastic change because we've seen his whole life in this deceptive man, this man who's just trusted in himself. And now finally God says, I'm giving you a new name because I'm going to do a new work in your life. You're no longer going to be Jacob. You're no longer going to be this deceiver, this guy who just does his own thing, trusts in himself. I'm making you Israel. I'm going to turn you into a man who is governed by me, who follows me, who does what I want in his life. Now, the reminder of Jacob's new name, I think, was important for him, especially from the last time he was told this to now, he surely hasn't been living like Israel. The last thing that we see from him is, you know, he's living like Jacob. From when God said that to him to now, there hasn't been anything that really has described someone governed by God. But there's been plenty of things that would describe this deceiver, this self-dependent man, this man who now in the midst of when he needs to respond because his daughter's raped, says nothing, does nothing. I mean, this isn't Israel. And so God's reminding, hey, remember this change that I want to do in your life? Remember that you're no longer this person that you used to be. You're now going to be someone different in this new work that I want to do in your life. You're no longer Jacob you got a new name. It's Israel. And I want to do a new work in your life. You know, God does the same thing with us. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. There's this new work that God does and He wants to remind us of that reality. You're not what you used to be. You're something new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this is something we need to be reminded of. If you have accepted Christ, God tells us, and reminds us, hey, don't forget there's something new. You're a new creation. What you used to be isn't what you are anymore. That old life has passed away. That's not who you are anymore. I'm not the Matthew I used to be. I'm a new Matthew living for God, not the one who was living for all sorts of other things. And sometimes we get caught up living for those other things again, and God reminds us, hey, remember? I changed you. Remember, you're not that anymore. Start living the way that you should be. But God not only reminds Jacob of his new name, he also reminds of something else important in verses 11 and 12. Also God said to him, I am almighty God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you I give this land. So not only does God remind Jacob of the fact that I've given you a name change, I want you to be different, but even though you have failed me, even though you have sinned, even though you haven't been Israel the way I want you to, you keep going back to being Jacob, my promise hasn't changed for your life. The blessings that I'm going to give haven't changed for your life. And, you know, I'm sure that he's probably wondering, because God has already given this promise to him, and you know, once you start failing God over and over, you start sinning over and over, you start to wonder, you know, maybe God's done. You know, maybe he's not going to continue with what he promised of me because I have failed him so many times. And I'm sure that's something that Jacob might have thought. And so God now reminds him not only do I want to remind you of the change I want to do in you, but I also want to remind you, I'm not done with you. My promise isn't done. I'm not going to stop what I said I would do. And so he gives him these two promise reminders of, hey, You and your descendants, you guys, I'm going to make you into this great nation. And there's something new he brings into this promise here that he hasn't really specified before. He says kings shall come from your body. Not only is this great nation going to come from you, but there's going to be great people within the nation that comes from you. Kings are going to come. The king of kings and lord of lords is ultimately going to be the greatest king that comes, but also the land that God gave to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. He's going to give to Jacob's descendants, this promised land. He's saying, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. And so God reminds him, my promise for you hasn't changed, even though you haven't been faithful to me, even though you haven't been living for me, I'm still faithful to you. Even though when we remain, God remains faithful, even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. And that should encourage us because sometimes we're in the same boat where God says, hey, you know what? My promise for you hasn't changed. You're not doing what you should be doing, but I'm going to still be faithful. I'm going to still complete that work which I started in you. Well, now we're going to see how Jacob responds to this wonderful encounter, wonderful blessing from God, great reminder of who God is making Jacob, the promises that he's giving to Jacob. Verse 14. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with God, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. So Jacob responds to God ultimately with worship. And this is just a a wonderful way in which to respond. He does it in a particular way, uh, makes a pillar and pours a drink offering on it. Now, the idea of a, a drink offering, we see several times in Scripture, more after God had given the law to the nation of Israel. So, Jacob doesn't know any of these things, but you know, obviously, he's probably doing something similar. But in Numbers fifteen four through seven, here are the specifications of what God and the sacrificial system says about a drink offering. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one tenth of an ephod, a fine flour mixed with one fourth of a hin of oil and one fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. You shall prepare with the burnt offering. Or the sacrifice for each lamb, or for a ram, you shall prepare a grain offering two tenths of an ephah of fine flour, and mix one third of a hin of oil. And as a drink offering, you shall offer one third of a hin of wine as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So, in the sacrificial system, the, the drink offering was connected with the sacrificial offering, uh, and you would pour wine, uh, and this wine would add, you know, certain measurements that were poured onto the altar, which was ultimately to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, another way just to offer a sacrifice um, to God and worship of who He is and what He's done. And so, you know, worship, there's so many ways in which we can worship. We ultimately, in worship, are responding with offering God something. We're offering God something because of who He is. We're offering God something because of what He's done. The most common thing that we think of is we offer God songs. You know, we did that before we started this teaching. You know, Lord, I want to offer you a song. I want to sing about you. I want to sing something to you. But, you know, we offer Him other types of things and sacrifices. And the most significant worship that we can give God is ourselves living for Him, to be someone who's obedient to Him, to say, Lord, I want to offer you my life. You know, that's the the greatest form of worship that we can demonstrate to the Lord. But here we see. Jacob is responding to what God has done, responding to all of this by saying, you know what, God, I want to now worship you. It brings us to the third thing I want us to note about how we should respond when we sin. And that is we need to worship. And, you know, the points are kind of in chronological order, because really the first thing you need to do is repent. You know, when you're in sin, start with repentance and that repentance should immediately lead to obedience. You want to turn away from your sin and obey God. And the reality is when you repent of your sin, as we already noted, God's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. When we're obedient, God blesses. And both of those realities should always bring us to a place where it's like, now I want to worship. I want to worship the God who forgives me when I fail. I want to worship the God who blesses me when I obey. And so there should be this response of worship as well after we've sinned, repentance, obedience. And worship. Well, this chapter is going to end with Jacob having two more people close to him die, and I want to note something significant within that. Of all the good things that are be happening here, notice how the end of this chapter comes together. Verse sixteen: Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was a little distance to go to Ephrath. Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Ani. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So Jacob and his family, they're traveling from Bethel to this place at that time, which was named Ephrath, and now today it's called Bethlehem. Obviously, we know Bethlehem very well because that is where Jesus is born, but Rachel's at the end of her pregnancy, and we're told that she has this hard labor. It's so hard that it's very dangerous. And back then, it wasn't uh, uncommon for women to die in childbirth because we didn't have you know, the medical advancements that we have today. And so she has this hard labor. The midwife who's with her says, it's okay, your baby's going to live. The problem is she's not. And so right before she dies, she names her son Ben-Ani, which means son of my sorrow. And you can understand why she would pick this name since she dies because of childbirth. But Jacob, being wise, does not want his son to live his whole life with a name that reminds him that It was me that killed my mom through childbirth. And so he changes the name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Jacob then buries Rachel in Bethlehem and sets a pillar on her grave. Now I want you to notice something that I think is important. Because oftentimes we have this delusion that says, you know what, if I get right with God, if I stop sinning, if I repent of those sins, if I start obeying and get right with God, then my life's going to be easy then there's not going to be any problems. Then nothing bad's going to happen to me. And there's a lot of people who think that, and they come to church, and then they, well, if I just get right with God, then everything will be a bed of roses. Everything will be so easy. I won't have to deal with any hardship, any loss, any difficulty, any pain. But that's just not the truth. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what we see here. Jacob finally gets right with God. He finally does what he should. He repents of his sin. He obeys God. He goes where God wants him to be. And in the midst of this, we see he loses the woman that he loved dearly. That same woman that he worked seven years for, and he said it was as a day because he loved her so much. And now his wife is dead. David Guzik said this, We cannot prize comfort more than getting right with God. For some, comfort is their idol. A false god they worship with constant pursuit and attention. Some only for a comfortable life not a godly life. The symbol for some Christians seems to be an easy chair, not a cross. You know, living a godly life often brings difficulty. Jesus says those who live godly will suffer persecution. Not might, not probably. No, you will suffer persecution if you live for God because we're living in a world who doesn't love Him, who doesn't desire Him, who is against Him. And so if we're for Him, They're against us, and because of that, there are going to be problems. But that's just one problem. There's the reality of we live in a fallen world, full of sin. And because of sin, there's death. And because of death, we'll have people that we love die, just like Jacob did. We're not going to escape that because we follow God. We're not going to escape that because we put our trust in Jesus. But we can deal with that very differently than those who don't have Christ. We don't escape those things, but we do have God's strength. We do have God's comfort. We do have God's peace. We do have God's love. We do have God with us every step of the way so that we can deal with those things very differently than those who don't have Christ. But don't come into this belief system that if I just trust God, everything will just be great and easy and simple. No. Life's still hard. People still die. Difficulties still come. But you do have God with you, which you didn't before you accepted him. And that's something that Jacob now can rely on and lean on. Verse 21, then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Notice now the name changes in the scriptures. We've constantly been talking about Jacob. God's changed his name to Israel. Now we're seeing his name used frequently. And once again, we're seeing, sadly, the fact that here is Jacob, this ungodly man for most of his life, a poor father spiritually, a bad example to his sons. And last chapter, two of his sons commit mass murder. And here in this chapter, his oldest son, Reuben sleeps with his concubine, Bilha, And, you know, just another kind of sad reality of what's going on here. But you know what? The one thing I do like about this is these are the start of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, and the Bible doesn't shy away from their failures. It doesn't shy away from these being real humans who failed, which to me brings more credence to the inspiration of Scripture That you know, if men wrote this, they surely would have hidden that, oh, these are our twelve pillars, you know, of the twelve tribes, and look at how great and mighty and awesome they were. And they didn't commit any problems. No, they write real things because this is inspired by God, and these are true events. And sadly, Reuben, the oldest, actually, it goes Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they're the three oldest, and all of them have committed really horrible sins. Well, now we're going to see that Jacob. He's not going to have any more children with wives. So he has 12 sons now, and we're going to have a list of the sons he has and who had them, verse 23. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So they all came from Leah. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Perdon, Aram. You know, Jacob has a pretty messed up family. And I'm encouraged by the fact that God can use messed up people. You know, I mean, you look at Abraham, you look at Isaac, you look at Jacob. It's kind of gotten progressively worse. Jacob's probably been the worst of all of them. His family's, you know, done the worst things of all of them. But yet God is still able to take messed up, broken, sinful people and use them and use them for his glory. And hopefully that brings encouragement to you. I know it brings encouragement to me. We see that through Scripture. God taking people who are just horrible sinners. I mean, you get a guy like Saul who is literally murdering Christians, and God transforms his life, and he becomes Paul, one of the greatest missionaries ever to live. And so God can take messed up people and change their life and use them in powerful ways because he is gracious, not because we are good or deserving of it. Well, this chapter ends with one more death in Jacob's life. One that he probably thought was going to die long before this. Verse 27, Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath, Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people being old and full of days. And his son, Esau and Jacob buried him. This whole story starts with Jacob thinking Isaac's going to die. Isaac thinking Isaac's going to die. Esau thinking Isaac's going to die. And his wife thinking that he's going to die. And so Jacob and his mom come up with that whole plan of deceiving dad in order to get the birthright and blessing that really belonged to the oldest son, and he was the second son. So it all started with the thought that Isaac's about to croak. Jacob's been gone for 20 years. Isaac's still alive. You know, so they thought, you know, remember he's blind. He's thinking, you know, my time is almost up. And yet he still lives for 20 more years. Jacob comes back to the promised land, actually gets one more reunion with his dad. I wish we would have been told what's said, how each other receive one another, because it was left not well. You know, I mean, Jacob leaves deceiving his dad. And it would have been nice just to kind of know how this happened and how it worked out. But we're not told that, but we are told that they do get to see each other one more time. But, you know, the thing that jumped out to me is this should be a reminder to us that our time is in God's hands. You know, we might expect that certain people should live longer than they will or other people should die quicker than they do. But we need to remember, you know what? Hey, only God knows and we need to trust in him. and ultimately. Live all our days, as the Bible says, as if it's your last. Hey, we don't know if we have tomorrow. We don't know if we have another year. We should be living every day for the Lord so that if we die and we go before Him, we don't go ashamed. We don't go thinking, well, I was going to get right with you in the next few years. I was going to start living for you you know, down the road. But no, I'm living for you now because we don't know how long we have the different people in our lives. And that should be another reason why we want to love them why we want to treat them right because we don't know if today's the last day I get that opportunity to say I love you if today's the last day I get that opportunity to demonstrate I love you and fortunately for Jacob he had an opportunity to come back and see his dad after 20 years which he didn't have that opportunity with his mom his mom passed away um and so you know we just never know but God does uh and so it's important for us just to live each day the way that we should so after Jacob's dad dies. His brother Esau comes. And once again, they come together. Remember, he ran away because Esau wanted to kill him. They get together. God changes Esau's heart. They have that reunion where Esau received him. But then he runs from Esau. Still not sure if Esau really does forgive him. But then they come again together right here and get to bury their father. So Jacob loses three people in this chapter, his mom's nurse, his wife, and his dad. But we also see that he gained a lot in this chapter. This is really one of the biggest turning points in Jacob's life. And we don't really see much more in Genesis with him. We've kind of just seen a lot of failure in this one chapter where he finally does stuff right. Where he finally gets right with the Lord. He repents. He obeys. He worships. He leads his family. It's like the one chapter where he's a good example where every other one, he's not so much. And as we come back to him, he's really kind of the secondary character because now we're going to move on to Joseph being the main character. And we're going to see the life of Joseph. And Jacob will kind of come in and out a little bit in that. But this is kind of the end of him being the focal point in the book of Genesis. And so, you know, it ends nicely with him um, changed, you know, with him being someone that the Lord really finally grabs hold of. And we see he's finally doing things that he should have been doing. And it should be an encouragement to us as well, that he turns away from his sin and he turns to God. And God responds by forgiving him. He obeys God, and God responds by blessing him. He worships God and was encouraged through that. And he didn't just do that personally. He also led his family to do the same. And so um, that's the biggest thing I want us to take from this chapter of how do we respond when we sin? And hopefully we can put these three things into practice. We need to repent, we need to immediately obey, and then we need to worship. If we can do that, those are great responses to our sin and so often our responses are things that are not what god would want and that's what we've seen an example of in the last few chapters of you know jacob and his sons but now we see a good godly one so hopefully we can put that into practice